Well, I am not Cliff. And he asked me to share a little bit with you this morning, and so I'll probably share a lot. No, I'm just... He told me what passages he was going to, wanted me to preach on, and so last week while he was preaching the intro to John 15, I was like, okay, what is he going to take that I can't use next week? And so when he called it stay, I was like, seriously, you called it stay? Stay only shows up once in the passage you preach on. It shows up four times in the passage I'm going to be teaching on this morning. And so then I thought about, okay, instead of me calling it stay, I'm going to call it dwell. And then I'm like, okay, that's the same as stay. And then I was like, abide, because King James says abide, or if you have the really old King James, it says abideth. Okay, got to put that th on it. And so I said, maybe I'll call it abide. And then I was like, no. In my NIV, it says remain. And I said, I could call it remain. He's, you know, in the past, he's used the same title for three sermons in a row. So I could just copy that. And I said, no, because what this passage is about, it's about as a relationship. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at John 15, verses 5 through 8. And it is about our relationship with Jesus or us being the branches, him being the vine. And in, do we have that? John 15, uh, 5 through 8 relationship. And it goes on to say, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like branches that are thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask what you wish and it will be done for you. This is to the Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. And so what does it mean to remain in the vine? What does all of this mean? Jesus uses these agricultural statements. How many of you have ever lived on a farm or been around farming or had even a garden, like a vegetable garden or anything like that? I grew up in South Florida. Everything grows in South Florida. I thought things magically appeared when I was young, right? I would walk into our backyard and we had a mango tree and we had... I know, mangoes. We had avocados. We had all different citrus fruits. One of the biggest things that I used to do with my cousins is when the, we had too many avocados and we couldn't eat them all and they'd fall on the ground, we'd have avocado wars. <laughs> and we would pick up the avocados and not thinking about the giant pit in the middle, we would just start chunking them at each other. And eventually we would quit because someone would get hit in the eye or in the face. And we'd be like, well, you're going to get in trouble, stop. And sometimes, usually we didn't let citrus fruit fall to the ground. But when it did, especially the grapefruit, those were great wars, right? Big old, it was like giant grapefruit throwing at each other. But my grandfather, my papa, he loved tomatoes. I hear people saying, hmm. I know, I know. There is nothing like a fresh tomato out of your garden, right? And feel free to bring me all you want if you have extras, okay? I love them. But there's nothing like a fresh tomato out of the garden. I thought they just appeared. I would go over to Nana and Pop-Pop's house, 
and I'd go out back, and there's these big, wonderful tomato plants full of fruit. They would let me go pick, yes, tomatoes are fruit. I would go out, and I would pick some tomatoes, and I'd bring them in, and they would cook meals with them, or we'd put them in salads. They were wonderful until I was old enough to help. <laughs> right? So I was old enough to help, so I would, they would take me out into the backyard. He would hand me this big fork-looking thing with big teeth, and he'd say, just stick it in the ground and, and turn everything over. I was like, turn it over? What are you talking about? And so I went out there, and I thought that that ground was the hardest ground ever. It's South Florida. It's sand, right? But I'm thinking, oh, this is torture. This is the hardest, hardest ground ever. So I'd get out there, and I'd turn over the ground, and I'd help. And then came the real hard part, right? You'd, you'd dig the holes, and you'd plant them. And I never knew why he did what he did. He would take those tomatoes that were about this tall and put about that much of them in the ground. And then he would pick off all the small branches on the bottoms and just leave the tops. Some of you are like shaking your heads because you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? And then he would take a handful of this nasty, smelly stuff and put it in the bottom of the hole, put the stuff down, put the dirt all around him. Done, right? Finished. Don't have to worry about it anymore. No. Every time I came over after that, I had to go pick off these giant, green, ugly worms. Okay, so some of you are like, yes, we know. Okay, they were nasty, and if you squeezed them too hard or broke the skin, they had this horrible green blood. It was like, <laughs> my wife's like, uh-uh, no. Okay, it, they were like aliens, right? Right? And there was nothing better than picking those off and throwing them at my sister. Sometimes they'd stick in her hair. I, <laughs> she's like, oh, I have stories. Just ask me later. And so there was this whole process. I never realized all the steps that went into growing tomatoes. Then I moved to Texas. We moved to Texas when I was 12 from South Florida. It was a bit of a culture shock, if you can't tell. Okay? If you, it, it was like totally different. Where's the citrus fruit? Why can't I go in my backyard and just pull a banana off of the, off the banana plant? They're not trees, they're plants. Okay, and so why can't I just go pull a banana off of the tree in the backyard? So we moved to Texas, and I learned what caliche clay is. <laughs> right? Right? And so my mom wanted all these fruit trees in the back of our house when we moved to Allen, which is just north of Dallas. And you walk out there and these cracks in the ground and they get bigger and they get bigger and they get bigger to where you can almost fall in one, right? And so you're looking at that and you're saying, how can you grow anything in the soil? Lots of work, lots of preparation, right? And so get out there, amend the soil, dig it up. I learned what a pickaxe was. We got out there and started busting up the soil, planted all kinds of different types of trees, plum trees and peach trees, apple trees, totally different types of fruit. But we were able to make it work as we got the knowledge to plant those things. Then we moved to San Antonio. I never, I heard people say, yeah, I grow rocks on my property. I never knew what that meant till I got here. If you go by my house, which all of you are welcome to, okay, you will drive by our front yard and all of our flower beds have these big rocks out around the edge of the flower beds. They came out of the ground. 
I am proud of those rocks. Instead of hauling off and getting rid of them, we said, you know what? We're going to own them. And so we built our flower bed edges out of these rocks. Now, we did go borrow a few rocks from other people's yards, but they didn't mind because they're like, take all you want, right? But as I dug, I would, I call it digging, right? I had a shovel and a thing called a rock bar. And so you get, you know, you use the shovel, then maybe the pickaxe, and if there's one too big, you get this big metal bar, rock bar, start prying apart. You work the soil, but it's amazing how much stuff you can grow here if you prepare the soil properly, right? It's, a, it's an amazing thing. And until you know the whole process, you can't fully appreciate it. Well, growing a vineyard in the promised land was a lot like working the soil around here. It is very rocky. It can be really hard soil. And the vineyards were planted up on the sides of hills. Now, if you want a true picture, God himself shares a picture of that in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, where he talks about the process that his beloved vineyard owner, which he was referring to Jesus back there, went through to plant the vines and to prepare the vineyard. And it says he picks, he picks some land with fertile soil on the side of a hill. It goes on to say, he dug it up. He cleared out all the stones and planted only the choicest vines. He built a watchtower. He cut out a wine press as well. And he prepared the property for the harvest. But he got bad grapes. You're like, wow, that's anticlimactic. It is. Because what this is, Jesus in John 15, when he's talking about the Father God being the vine dresser or the gardener and him being the true vine and us being the branches, is referring back in part to this Isaiah 5 passage, which is a really good study if you want to take some time and look it up. One, verses 1 through 7 talk about it, but it goes all the way through 21. And it talks about how the produce, how the, how the grapes that they expected to come out of Israel, the fruit they expected Israel to, to have was just bad fruit. It's amazing when you look through the Gospels and when you look through the Old Testament, when, when they talk about bad fruit or no fruit, they're all the same. Because you're expecting good fruit, Right? You're expecting something that can be eaten or used or made into wine. Whereas the, the bad fruit, or sometimes called wild grapes, um, would come into play. And those were considered to be bad fruit. Still produced some kind of fruit, but it wasn't the fruit that they wanted. So you have this passage in Isaiah where it talks about he gets to the land. He works the soil. He removes all the rocks. He builds a wall and a hedge around it. He builds a watchtower to watch over this vineyard. He takes all of these steps to prepare the vineyard even before it starts producing fruit. It's like the steps to planting those tomatoes or other things. We have to properly prepare. If, if you think about back in Matthew chapter 13... Jesus uses this illustration about the seeds and the soils. Remember that? The rocky ground, the good ground, all those things. Talks about the importance of the preparation of the ground, right? Before you even start to plant. And so we've got this preparation that's going on. And it's talked about in the first part of this chapter of 15 that 
Cliff was talking about last week, how the preparation, the location's important. One of the reasons it was on a hillside was because as it rained, that water could come down the hill and they could catch that water to water the plants. Pretty cool that they thought that all through. Also, the flatter land was going to be used for different grain crops and for olive orchards because olives were a big deal just like the vines were. But over and over again in the Old Testament, Israel is referred to as a vine. And so God would sit there and tend that vine and prune that vine and trim that vine. But he had to prepare the soil properly. Why did he have to turn over the soil and get all the rocks? Well, the roots of grapes go pretty deep. On average, about 15 feet down into the ground. That's one of the reasons they can grow in, over in an arid country like Israel or around here. Have you been driving through the hill country and seen all the different uh, grape uh, vineyards or however, you know, some of them are table grapes, but they have them all throughout the hill country. The only places they can put them is where there's enough ground for those roots to penetrate to get down into that moisture. And so the roots go deep. All of these different pictures and all of these different things go into our relationship that we have with God. And so God has already prepared all of this for us. He has already prepped all of this. He had a plan ahead of time to send Jesus for us, to sacrifice his son for our sin. All of this was pre-done, prepared as he planted that root, as that vine grew. It was all ready. And so we get to the pruning of the vine. It's planted, it starts growing, it's in good soil, it's getting watered, it's being tended, so it's got to be pruned. Now, pruning is a tricky thing. I don't know how many of you have gardens and how many of you go and prune things. You have to be, know your plants pretty well to prune them, right? Because if you prune them wrong, you can set them back. If it's a plant that flowers, you could prune the flowering part right off of the plant. The crazy thing about grapevines is they only produce fruit on last year's growth. So, you better know what you're doing. If you cut too much off, you won't have any fruit this year. If you don't cut enough off, the fruit's not going to be as good as it could be. Knowing the vine, knowing the branches, it's super important. God knows us really well, right? He knows how to prune us. He knows how to shape us into the plan and purpose he has for us. One of the things that, that I read was the further the fruit is from the vine on the branch, the worse the fruit is. The closer the fruit is to the life-giving source of the vine, the better the fruit is, the sweeter and as we think about that with our relationship with Christ, the closer we are to him, the better our life is. The further away we are, the more difficult it becomes. It was interesting because they, I was reading all this stuff. I'm not a grapevine expert. I don't even, I've never grown grapes, but I think I maybe could now after reading all this stuff to prep for this. But one guy said, what you'll learn about grapes is when they're established and growing, you're gonna cut off more of them every year than you think. 
he said most of the new growth will be cut off because they only want about two feet or what they call four or five nodes, which are the little growth points on the vines, away from the central part of the vine to produce fruit. And like I said, it, it grows off of last year's growth. So it has to be year-old growth. And then you have to also prune all the new stuff in the proper way so that it goes properly. And you're like, okay, well, I get that part. That part's easy. There's more. I know. You're like, oh, great. If you have branches that are too close together, the fruit will be too close together. And since the fruit has a lot of sugar in it, if it doesn't get enough breeze, enough wind going through the fruit, guess what happens to that sugary fruit? It starts to mold. It'll get mold, bacteria, insects. And so you've got to space it wide enough to where the wind will move through there. Interesting fact. The Hebrew word for wind is the exact same word for the spirit. So as the wind moves through the vines, the spirit moves through the vines. Thus the illustration of the grapevine. It's, and I'm going to butcher this, I'm sure. But the pronunciation is uh, ruaka. Raka means wind or spirit. And so they have to prune out all the vines and all the growth that could cause the wind or the spirit not to move within the fruit. Then, I know there's more, then it needs to be exposed to sun because the sunlight will help keep away the pests and the mold. And so any of the vines that go down, they cut off. Any of the vines that go to weird angles, they cut off. And all they do is they leave the vines that are facing up into the sun that are properly spaced. There's a lot that goes into this grape growing thing, isn't there? But our father, the gardener, knows every aspect of it. And so he prunes us to be the most fruitful we can be. It's an amazing thing when you think about it. Because it has to be in the right position to pr produce the right fruit with the right amount of sunlight, with the right amount of air movement. And so you've got, this, you've got this certain circumstance that goes for this certain type of grape. Uh, in, interesting sidebar, there were only seven acceptable forms of grape back in Israel that you could plant. Another interesting sidebar, all table grapes today, when genetically tested, they went, their roots went back directly to those seven original types in Israel. So they all evolved from those into what we have today. And yes, I said the roots go back, and yes, it was a play on words. So, what we've got is we've got this connection. Not only is the culture connected to the grapes, but spiritually we see this relationship that God has used with the grapes, with the grapevine, and with the fruit. Now, there's, there's, a, couple, there's a couple parts of this passage that people struggle with a little bit. So if you look at verse 6, it says, if you do not re remain in me, you are like branches that are thrown away. And whether such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. Um, some people, and Cliff talked about this a little bit last week. Some people will try to say, well, you can lose your salvation. I don't believe that's what it means. And when you do the study and when you look at John's purpose in this writing and all those, he's more referring to branches that were never truly part of the vine. Think of Judas Iscariot. Judas, even though he seemed to be part of the vine, 
even though Judas was one of the 12, right? He was cut off. He had not made that full commitment to Christ. If we think about it in a more personal perspective, there are a lot of people that have emotional connections to Jesus or have some kind of mental connection or they've, they've, they've rationalized their way to God or to Christ, but that doesn't transform your heart. Without repentance, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so what you have is you have, this, you have these people that are receptive to the idea of Jesus and say, woo, go Jesus, right? But have never committed to themselves the way that, that they need to to have that life-altering, life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's one of the reasons I called this, this sermon Relationships. Because we have to come to that point in our lives where we say, Jesus, I believe in you. I accept you as a son of God, and I confess my sins and wrongdoings, and I'm going to repent of those things, which means turn completely from those things and go the opposite direction. And in that repentance, that is where our forgiveness is found, in that relationship. And so the, the, the reference here by John is a reference to people who have never taken that step of commitment and repentance and turned their lives around and turned away from their sin and headed toward God. The, and one of the reasons this is such a strong illustration is because if you leave deadwood laying around, there's a lot of dangers to deadwood. You can get rot, you can have bugs, it can, be, it can cause fires. So as soon as you see deadwood, the first thing that you do is you take up all that deadwood or dead grass or whatever it is, you remove it and you get it away. You go and you burn it most likely. I mean, think about oak wilt. I mean, we've, we, you drive around and you see these beautiful, what used to be beautiful giant oak trees that are dead and dying and, look, and they look like a horror movie, right? Well, the way to get rid of that stuff is you got to cut it down and burn it and keep it from spreading to the other healthy trees. It's a lot like what they're talking about here. There were several different diseases and illnesses that, would, that grapevines um, were susceptible to. And so that dead wood, pruning it, moving it out was important. But also, there were occasionally branches that produced no fruit. And because they produced no fruit, they were no value to the vine. And so what they did was they would cut that off, remove it, and it would become like these other branches thrown into the fire. Because the purpose of the branches on the vine is to what? Produce fruit. But not just fruit, okay? Good fruit, much fruit. And we need to keep that focus as we study this passage. So we've got this preparation, we've got this pruning. We understand that the dead branches, you know, are not people losing their salvation. They're people that were really never connected to the vine, never really knew Jesus. And we get to the production. Now, this is where I think in our Western culture and mentality, we struggle a little bit, is with the production. Because if I say production to you, what does that automatically communicate to you? As much, as much fruit as possible, right? That's not what was important back then, and that's not what's important to God. He wants the best quality fruit possible. So if you want to put it in more of a westernized term, you can say the most quality fruit possible. Not the most fruit possible, but the most quality fruit possible. I don't know about you, but it's very, 
frustrating when I go to the grocery store and I see some gorgeous grapes that are big and fat and juicy looking and I buy them and I'm like, these are going to be so good. And I put one in my mouth and it's sour. Anyone ever have that happen? Okay. I, I, some of you are saying yes. If you have never had that happen, tell me how to pick out fruit because unfortunately it happens to me on occasion, right? It's, it's, it's big, it's juicy, it looks like all the other grapes, but it is sour when I eat it. It's ridiculous. It should be sweet and juicy, just like all the rest of the grapes, but it wasn't. It's because it didn't get enough of something to produce the sugars within the grape. I don't know what, because I was not the gardener tending that vine. But the purpose of the vine in this passage is to make the best quality fruit overall. Not just good fruit, the best quality fruit overall. And the harvest time is important. A lot of times what happens is, I don't know about you guys, but with my little story earlier with the avocados and even with the tomatoes, because there were times we had so many more tomatoes than we could harvest. I'm sure none of you have had that happen, but they fall on the ground. They make good things to fight with too. Um, but they ruin clothes. So, at least that's what I was told by my mom. So, you go out there and you have fruit falling on the ground that's ripe fruit, that's good for eating, that would be good for something, but you didn't have enough people to harvest that fruit. And so it's important that we have enough people to do the harvest as well. That's why when you look through the New Testament, it talks about, hey, go out and hire some workers, and that worker is good for the wage for that day, because there were times when the fruit would ripen, and it would ripen more rapidly. That is a tongue twister, ripen more rapidly. It ripened more rapidly than they expected, and so they would go out and they would say, hey, we need to hire you to come help pick our fruit. Because it was important to get that fruit in, out of the sun, off the vine as quickly as possible to maintain the integrity of the fruit. And so you've got this thing that you have to understand when it comes to production. Timing is important. Type of fruit is important because we're going for the most, most quality fruit we can have. And so how do we get that as Christians? How do we get the quality time? How do we get the timing right? Well, in verse 7, it says, if you remain in me and my words remain in you. It's about spending time, right? Spending time with Jesus. Remaining means to stay, dwell, abide. All those words that I said I thought about calling this sermon. We do all those things. And as we do those things, our relationship with God and our understanding of God and what he has for us grows. You need to read the scripture, you need to study the scripture, you need to me memorize the scripture, you need to meditate on the scripture. And you need to have, that's what we call a quiet time. I don't know if any of you take the time in your lives to, to meet with God every day, but it is a great opportunity for you to do these things and to abide or remain in him. And as you do that, apply the scripture to that time. Use that time as prayer and, and not just... Not just one of those prayer times where you go through the prayer list and ask for everything, but a time when you can just stay there before God and say, God, what do I need to do? Guide me. Help me. Thank you so much for what you've done for me. We, could, you know, we need to praise, honor, 
give thanksgiving to God, not just ask him for things. And as we build this relationship, what ends up happening is over time, we begin to start produce good fruit for the kingdom without even realizing it. It just becomes second nature to us. It just grows out of us, comes out of us. It overflows. As more God goes in, more God comes out. And that's the cool thing about it. We grow in that, and we start filling the greatest commandment, which is love the Lord your God with everything you are. But what's second to that? Love your neighbor as yourself, but here in John, he puts it to a different level. Love your neighbor as I have loved them. The more time we spend with God, the more we remain and dwell in him, what happens is that overflows. And that starts to happen, and we start to love other people like we love God. It's just the change that happens. I, you know, I love my grandbabies. Can I get an amen? Uh, and I never understood how much I could love them. I caught myself, I'm, I'm a pretty reserved person. My wife might disagree with me. I know, she's looking at me like, what are you talking? Hey, y'all keep it down back there. Okay. I was sitting there watching my grandson walk across the room, going to grab something he shouldn't grab, Right? And something I knew that Grammy was going to get upset about. And I found myself with the biggest smile on my face. Right? I didn't realize it was there. It shouldn't have been there because I was sending the wrong message to him in the middle of him about to grab something he wasn't supposed to grab. I had so much joy in that moment just watching him. I don't know where all that joy and love came from. Right? And then I said, thank you, God, for giving that to me. That's the kind of joy and love we can have for God and for other people. If we just give ourselves the opportunity to dwell in that, to abide in that, to live in that. And as we do that, everything we desire becomes the same desires of God. Because here's the other problematic part in this passage that some people struggle with. It says, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. But the qualifiers here are remain in you. If, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, and this is to the Father's glory. We need to understand when we pray and ask for these things, these are things that honor God. These are things that we say, help us be more fruitful. Help us to love each other more. Help us to love you more. It's all things that are God-focused and God-centered. If you ask for those things, God is never going to deny that. He talks about it, if you look back at John 14, uh, 13 and 14, he, he says basically almost the same thing. Ask what you will and it will be done unto you. And he qualifies those statements as well as being God-related, God-honoring, and Jesus-honoring. It's not that, and some of you have heard me say this before, it's not that I can pray for a pony and get a pony. When I was a little kid, I was sure if I prayed hard enough to get a pony, God would give me a pony. Didn't work. I was frustrated, didn't know why, but hey, I tried. But now I understand that 
that wasn't honoring God, and my parents would have been very angry at me because we didn't have a place to put a pony. But it needs to be something that honors God and honors the kingdom. So when I pray, I am praying for those things that God wants in my life. I'm praying for those things that will honor God and help me to share God with others in my life. And so it's not really that confusing. It's not really that difficult. It's pretty easy when you look at it in context. And so we, we do those prayers, and part of the prayer is that we bear much fruit. Look how he bookends this. Can you, get, can you go back to the first passage where it's all of them? Like where it's five through eight? There we go. And so in the beginning it says, I am, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. And then he puts a little qualifier. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I know that, God, okay? So if you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Now go to the next slide. Look at eight. For this is to the Father's glory that you bear much fruit. So what is the purpose of this passage as Jesus is relaying it? What is the purpose? Come on, pretty easy. I just gave it to you. I feel like I'm te teaching teenagers again sometimes. Okay, the purpose is simple. Bear much fruit. And the qualifier is to the Father's glory. That we bear much fruit to the Father's glory. And that means that we live a life that honors and pleases God. As we do that, we, we, we are witnesses to those around us, and we share with them about Jesus Christ. We share about them with the love of God that can transform their lives and make their lives worth living. I, you know, I didn't grow up in church. I didn't receive Christ until I was 17. And it was, it was really interesting for me because, because I, I started going out with this girl who was a preacher's daughter. You know what they say about preacher's daughter, and Cliff's not here, so I can get away with this. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Um, they say that preacher's daughters are wild, is some of the reputation they get. It wasn't that she was specifically wild, but it was really interesting because her dad said to me, if you want to see my daughter on Saturday nights, you have to come to church on Sunday morning. And I was like, ain't happening. And two weeks later, I was in church on Sunday morning. <laughs> Never really had been to church in my life. I sat in the very back spot, in the very back pew. I don't want to point at anyone specifically because I'll make them feel bad. But I was as close to the back doors as you could get. And it's what I call a shotgun church, which means you can see out that door to the parking lot, right? There's nothing in between, straight out the back. And I was sitting there, and I would write notes to her and her sister, because there were the three youth in the church, me, her, and her sister. And so I would, I, yeah, I know. It was a church of like 75 in a rural part of, it wasn't even in Allen. It was outside of Allen. And back then, that was rural, rural. And so we would write notes to each other, and I was not paying attention. I refused to pay attention. Four weeks later, I was asking her what it meant to have Jesus in my heart. It was amazing how the Spirit of God started working in my heart. And it wasn't because of her. 
It was because of her dad. Some of you know that I work part-time for a cabinet maker um, that builds cabinets and furniture. The reason I learned those skills is because her father was, was a bivocational pastor who was a general contractor who did finished carpentry work. So he hired me on to work with him doing the carpentry work. Ah, Jesus connection. Um, doing carpentry work doing that carpentry work, and he would have conversations with me while we were doing that. He was witnessing and discipling me at the exact same time. It was an amazing thing to look back on and go, that's how you do it. And so I was sitting in front of her house in her white pinto with red interior. Don't ask me how that's a thing, but it was, right? Red vinyl interior, white pinto. It's Sunday afternoon. We had gotten back from all going to... One thing I did learn about church is after church, you all go eat somewhere together. I learned that quickly. Usually it's a buffet. I think, I think it was Golden Crow that day. I don't know. Um, but I was sitting in front of her house and I said, I feel like I, ha I have butterflies floating around in my stomach. I think I need to pray and ask Christ in my heart, how do I do it? She couldn't tell me. She went inside, asked her dad, came back out, told me what her dad said. I prayed. Christ entered my life, praise the Lord. And I received Christ in that pinto in front of that house. Now, Discipleship after that, that's a whole nother story. We don't have enough time for that. So I'll have to share that with you guys at another time. But at least she was willing to go ask her dad, how do I tell him to receive Christ? My challenge to you as we try to make much good fruit, I know that's not good English, don't care. But as we try to make much good fruit is that you go out and be fruitful, tell people about Jesus and lead them there. Tell them who has transformed your life, who has changed your life, and how he can do the same for them. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this time together. I thank you for this opportunity to speak your truth and, this, and to preach your word. Um, I pray that your word would not go out void, but Father, that you would just speak to hearts and to minds. I ask, Lord, that if there's anyone here that's struggling with anything this morning, I pray your peace and mercy upon them. I pray that you would just give them your spirit and help them see, see the truth and help guide their steps, Father. Lord, I ask that if there's any here that don't know you and they're feeling led, I pray, Father, that they would just take the steps they need to do to know you and to come and have a relationship with you. And Father, for all of us, help us to learn to dwell in you truly every day, and help us to go out and, and share the good fruit we have with this world that needs us so badly. We ask all this in Jesus' name.